This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, we have a special episode looking at the work of Jewish women in comics. Later in the program, I'll be talking to editor and writer Alisa Quitney about her various careers in and outside of comics, such as editing DC Comics in the 1990s, working on various beloved titles that would become part of the Vertigo imprint, such as Shade the Changing Man, her writing experience on such titles as The Dreaming and Destiny, spin-offs of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comic, and her parallel career as a novelist. However, in the first half of today's show, I'm talking to Sarah Lightman, one of the editors of a new book called Jewish Women in Comics, Bodies and Borders, which features the work of various female Jewish cartoonists from numerous decades, including Sharon Rudal, a veteran comics creator known for her strips in the indie anthology Women's Comics in the 1970s, who's also joining us for our chat. My Q&A with Sarah and Sharon was recorded via Zoom, so you'll have to forgive the varying sound quality and occasional dropouts. Sarah, perhaps you could start. This book feels like a kind of thematic sequel, as it were, to your earlier collection, Graphic Details, Essays on Confessional Comics by Jewish Women. Did you always intend to do a follow-up, or did uh, the publishers approach you and your fellow authors, your fellow editors, saying an additional collection would be uh, very much appreciated? That sounds really nice and systematic way of approaching life, but that's not really the way I do things. But what I will say is um, I really enjoyed editing my first collection and felt was really important contribution to culture, Jewish culture, Jewish comics history, culture, women's comics. And I, um, I've then edited a number of journals and one was uh, with Heike and Andrea, Heike, uh, Heike Bauer and Andrea Greenbaum, my co-editors of this volume. And I thought, why don't we, and that volume was on Jewish women in comics. And then I thought, why don't we now edit another book? So we agreed to do it together. We did it with a theme and um, it kind of grew from there. It was started about seven years ago. So it was a really slow project interrupted by COVID and various illnesses for us or our families. Um, so it was a really long project, but we had a wonderful publisher. They did everything beautifully illustrated, beautifully designed book. And once again, I feel it's another great contribution to the world of comics. And if you're ever going to talk or teach a course, this is a great, great way of having all these comics and essays and interviews together um, in an easily, easily accessible resource. So it, it's lovely to contribute to knowledge in this way. Mm. And like I said, in in a way, it feels like it is approachable by the general public as well as scholars, because the way that it integrates um, academic essays, reproductions of comics and interviews, it feels like a really valuable resource because it touches on all of those kind of three ways of representing the uh, writers and artists involved. And it feels actually like a progressive way of doing an academic book on comics that maybe other publishers could learn from. Yes, I've always wanted to make works 
that were absolutely accessible because otherwise things don't get seen and one of the aims of, of making a collection like this is for people to see for example Sharon's work in its own beautiful four-page format and there are other works in that that haven't been translated before a number of works by Haredi Orthodox uh, Jewish mothers they've never been seen before um, and also to um, introduce this way of which I did in my first book was having people res respond to the comics often in quite creative ways so even though they're very well-known academics they respond often to these works not in kind of difficult to understand arguments but also in just like quite personal beautiful creative responses and I really enjoyed we have a this as I said we've got D.A. Bubba but by Sharon in it and a beautiful essay by Margaret Galvin to accompany it and I think these are also very accessible academic essays, um, which I'm really pleased that we can, as I said, kind of break these boundaries of what you might think is uh, easy to read and informative. Mm. Sharon, I've not, you know, delved deeply into how many ways your different comics have been reproduced over the years, but a kind of quick look at your biography gives me the sense that Debuba is a work that has been reprinted a number of times both in a kind of best of women's comics, unusually in a Marvel comic, where I guess there was a period where they were trying to attract a crossover audience from uh, underground comics. And then of course, uh, in this new anthology. How do you feel having this kind of four page comic as the first introduction to your work, perhaps to a number of readers? Well, when I look at my old work, I always notice things that I think I do better now. But it also stands, holds up for me of something I'm I'm proud of having done. I, it is by far my most reprinted work, and it's been translated into a number of languages, including Swedish. So if I have to be remembered for one work, I wouldn't be embarrassed if that ended up being the one. <laughs> I mean, it certainly felt that when this comic and the other strips that you did for women's comics uh, came out in the 1970s, uh, you and other female creators, and certainly other female Jewish creators, were finally kind of not only finding their voice in comics and having your stories kind of brought to a new audience, it also felt that maybe you were kind of cracking the door open for women in general uh, in comics. I mean, did you feel that you were kind of part of, uh, you know, an important moment in time, or was it just kind of the right time in the right place? It very much felt like an important moment in time. Trina Robbins recruited me for drawing comics just when the underground newspapers that had been against the Vietnam War were collapsing because that whole movement was collapsing. Um, and it felt very much, we went, we had a women's uh, consciousness raising group and we had the women's cooperative women's comics group. It definitely felt like a specifically feminist effort to give women a place they could speak in their own voice and not be just sort of window dressing in, in books that were mostly by men or be kept out of books. So a question that Sarah has asked me on various occasions is, you know, why did you do this, that or the other? What was this particular draw in this biography biographical topic or this other topic. And what she leaves out is mostly I do what people tell me they'll print. If a publisher asks me to do something, you know, I'll come up with something I want to do. Like like many artists that try to scrape out a living, I, I have many things I would like to do and the, the choice is often up to whoever is willing to pay to have it published. In the case of Dubuque, it was for comics book, which was Marvel's attempt to make money of what they thought would be popular. And the editor, Dennis Kitchen, I had done some things for him that were sort of self-referential 
autobiographical, and he specifically suggested that I that I continue. Another story Sarah likes and has used is the Star Sapphire. That was also printed in comics book first. So comics book did give me the opportunity to do two longer and, and better quality paper printed works than I often had a chance to do. It was an excellent opportunity. It only lasted a couple of years, I think, the comics book, maybe not even that long, but it was an important door opening. I mean, in, was there any um, kind of crossover audience that you were aware of? Did anyone sort of write into the letters page of comics book and said, oh, I normally only buy, you know, sort of Spider-Man and the Hulk from Marvel, but you've opened my eyes to a whole new world. I'm not aware of any. I, I imagine some geeky teenager looking for a superhero comic and reading it by accident and being horrified, but I don't actually have any of that on record. Apparently, they didn't sell enough copies to keep it up. <laughs> I mean, you know, in terms of finding a new audience, it did feel that not only were you and your fellow creators of women's comics at the time kind of representing the voices of women, you were also, I guess, emboldening uh, autobiographical comics. And it, it felt like an era where suddenly that was a genre that found its feet and found an audience. I mean, was that kind of important to you or was it just the kind of medium, the genre that you were being asked to work in by the editors? I felt that drawing comics was a medium that worked for what I wanted to do. I had gone to art school in New York City at the height of the uh, minimal art, uh, black canvases, white canvases, and a lot of my teachers didn't even know how to draw or paint. Uh, it was all about shtick. Yiddish, as usual, comes up with the best words. You come up with some kind of trick, and then the rich people buy and sell it like stock. It wasn't what I wanted to do in art. Uh, I fell into drawing things like comics in illustrating stories in underground newspapers. I did panel comics, and I did fake advertisements, and I did satirical drawings. So I was ready. I had laid the, the groundwork for being able to draw comics. But I didn't imagine myself as a cartoonist. I, I, car cartooning was a form that I found that allowed me to do what I had always wanted to do, but I didn't know what it was. So I, I remain for a lifetime of gratitude that working for, for political and underground publications gave me the opportunity to, to find this, this outlet. Mm. And obviously, you know, we think back on women's comics um, as being a very kind of like important time for new readers and so on. Um, but thinking of kind of like Sarah's uh, kind of intersection uh, with this world, um, not only with these two kind of books that you've co-edited on uh, Jewish women's comics, which are perhaps bringing them to a new audience in the present day. Um, as a reader, did you come across some of these underground comics from the 70s um, in your youth? Me? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, because I didn't really find comics till um, after my postgraduate at the Slade. So oh. I, I have this in common with Sharon is that I went to art school Fortunately, I was in a slightly less kind of dogmatic age where I was able to make art, but I was making quite narrative, personal, autobiographical art without knowing it was comics. And it was only after I finished my MFA that I discovered comics and the whole comic scene in the UK. And then I needed to kind of find my Jewish equivalents, really, and most of them were in America. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I curated the exhibition Graphic Details that toured from 2010 to 2016, I got to meet Sharon in person. Do you remember in San Francisco? I do remember. I do remember meeting you. We had a lovely panel. You something. It was very nice. And Trina was there. So we had a yeah. panel discussion with them. And I, I, from then onwards, I could read about them all and, and felt incredibly excited and kind of liberated from their comics. 
I found that the world I came from, we didn't, one didn't really talk about the things one struggled with or kind of discomfort or kind of antagonism with family or with kind of religious structures you grew up in. And these Jewish women's comics gave me permission to be uncomfortable with the world I came from and feel angry and then also look into communities where I did actually fit and feel more comfortable. Can I jump in here? I, I just wanted to say sort of backfilling on some of the other things we've been saying that the comics we were doing in the 70s didn't lay the groundwork for what comics became, but they laid the groundwork for what the graphic novel became. Uh, and none of the things that we think of as serious graphic novels, some of which got made into plays and won Pulitzer Awards and all the rest, none of that would have been possible without the work we were doing in comics in the 70s. And a lot of it, I'm afraid, has gone through the same cycle as most art forms, that it's becoming just as meaningless and buy and saleable as any other art form and in some ways less real. But, you know, there's still works coming out that are strong and important. It's it's become a medium that can get used for doing things that novels can't really do anymore. Mm. Well, that's what I was going to say. In a way, you've kind of brought, you were bringing the stories that would have only previously been found in novels to comics, you know, so whether you think of it as the birth of the graphic novel or underground comics kind of breaking through into the mainstream it, it felt like such uh you know comics are such an important medium for bringing personal um stories to audiences and perhaps in a more accessible way than many other media you were not just autobiographical stories uh, we did science fiction we mm. did romantic stories we, we there was no limit to what we were trying to do some was successful some was unsuccessful but we were exploring fully the range of expression with these in this in genre in something that was faster produced cheap to buy you know uh that you that you didn't have to have a huge studio you didn't have to have a gallery that you could go ahead and create these works and experiment and try things something my younger son pointed out to me that it's he reminds me that I've reminded him too many times, but the great the great Greek dramatists are only a hundred years. A hundred years of Euripides and Aeschylus and Sophocles, the great novels were only about a hundred years. In my opinion, movies were only about a hundred years. You know, and our time as cartoonists is probably running out, but I'm again, I'm grateful that I got to work during the heyday of it. We, we did feel like Paris in the 20s when we were working in San Francisco in the 70s. Um, Art Spiegelman was down one road and, and Spain Rodriguez down another road and I was roommates with Trina you could just walk around and say how should I draw this building or what's the best way to show a coffin that we were all we were not that people were all cooperative there was a lot of rivalry too but it was all there to draw on and to discuss and it was a very exciting time <laughs> and then I guess perhaps there was a point in your career where dare I say it you went mainstream um, by sort of adapting classic literature um, to the graphic canon anthology, uh, adapting Studs Kirkle, um, becoming uh, a comic artist who is also part of a process of adaptation. Um, how did that become part of your career? I wasn't getting any work for a while. And Paul Boole, who's my sort of unpaid agent, suggested that if there's one person that would always hire you for cheap, it was the graphic canon guy. And and um, <laughs> and, and he had the great virtue of um, printing on good paper, giving you a nice extended deadline and letting you do whatever you wanted. So I think my first graphic canon work was a, my only translation from Mandarin Chinese, which I'd been teaching myself in my free time. So it was a great pleasure to have an excuse to get something printed that I translated from Chinese. You know, I, I seize opportunities when they come. Studs Trickle, they actually said I could have the whole book, but I don't work fast enough. So I went through and selected 
characters that I felt were the most expressed that I could express what I wanted to express through, through them. And I've always been sorry that book wasn't more successful because I really feel having the actual people that said the words sort of there in front of me freed me up visually to do more things, more creative artistic expressions than I would do if they were my own words. I'll do anything if you'll pay me to do it. Draw <laughs> 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 pictures. And, and people have sometimes said, I mean, even recently, oh, did you get this sub-published, self-published? And my feeling about that, uh, to use a genre type expression, that would be like buying my own drinks. A gal's got to have some self-respect. No, I would never self-publish. Part of the criterion for this being my art form is somebody believes in it enough to pay to publish it. That's That convinces me that I'm willing to work and produce it. And I suppose one thing uh, that you and Sarah have in common is that either by accident or design, you've sort of become uh, ambassadors for kind of Jewish culture. Um, in terms of the two kind of anthologies that you've worked on, Sarah, obviously you're bringing uh, Jewish women's stories and both as creators and kind of like academic writing about them to a new audience. Um, well, Sharon, you know, you've worked on such books as uh, Yiddishkeit, The Jewish Vernacular, and Studs Kirkel, which again are perhaps, through working in this populist form of comics, again bringing, you know, stories of Jewish life to a wider audience. You know, I never intended to do that. I never, I wasn't bought mitzvah. I wasn't, I didn't go to shul. Um, but again, I'm working on the, the bun book that I recently wrote the, the script for. It makes me aware that how much I am a part of Jewish culture and how much of the person I am, the mother I am, the artist I am, does draw from this this wave of, of secular, humanist, schmaltzy Jewish culture, which I think of as Mel Brooks culture, to be perfectly honest, and proud to be a part of. What can I say? So, I mean, yeah. I, I've I've come to realize how much of what I didn't realize was Jewish about my worldview is indeed that that from that strain of Judaism, always humorous and accepting suffering as part of life, but you know always supporting the underdog. Always, I think in a way I can understand how people are non-Jewish Jewish authorities are suspicious of Jews because we won't let ourselves just get roped into torturing other people, I think, as easily as many another group is, is brought up to be. We do have the sense that we have to return we, we to our own inner sense of what's right and wrong, even whatever the, the penalties for that would be. I have to say, that's what I love about your graphic biographies. You've done Emma Goldman and Paul Robeson. And I love that these are two characters as well who have a cause that's greater than themselves, that they, they'll do anything. They'll, they put their whole kind of self and life on the line for something they really believe in. And I, I found that quite inspiring. And I just wondered, Sharon, what it was like to kind of be writing about these people who live kind of an exemplary life insofar as, even though they went against the authority of the time, um, they had an ideal, a great, greater, I know, a higher, a higher, a higher kind of higher ideal that they would put their lives to, dedicate their lives to. Well, I, I, these are two memories from long ago. I was actually told when I think I wasn't much more than a toddler, if I didn't start behaving myself, I'd end up like Emma Goldman. 
So I think that was always in the cards for me. And the way I got that job is I did a few pages about her for a, a Paul book on the IWW. And I made the rash comment to Paul, um, Emma Goldman deserves her own book. And he went out and got to deal with New Press. And then it was quite a learning experience. But I can't help feeling very close to Emma Goldman in many ways. Culturally, we even lived on the same block in the Lower East Side. That's where I lived when I went to art school. This was on the same block that Emma Goldman used to live on. Now, Paul Robeson, I'll bring up a different youthful memory. At some point of my teenage years of knowing I wanted to be some kind of artist, but not having any idea what I could do, I envied the monks that got to illuminate stories. Again, words and pictures. And and to do the life of a saint, to draw the pictures, and then the words, the, the holy words would go along with it. And when I got the job of doing Paul Robeson, um, I really felt that I had that, that opportunity, that I was I was illuminating the life of a saint. Um, I got that job because um, Rutgers University, which was his alma mater, approached Paul saying they wanted a Paul Robeson graphic book. And, and Paul gave it to me rather than some of his more famous artists, because he said I was the only one that still had popular front politics. And I didn't even know what that meant. But what it meant is that I was just an ignorant, bleeding heart leftist that would fall for any of this stuff and didn't have any historical or technical knowledge about left-wing politics that I would bring in to spoil my my feeling about that. And I'm proud, proud that I got that, that I was earned that opportunity by by ignorance and enthusiasm. I really I've never read Marx or anything. I mean all my politics just, just come from the heart, but apparently come from Jewish culture to a great extent, even though I didn't realize that. Hmm. Uh, and Sarah, you ducked the question by uh, asking one yourself. <laughs> I mean, how do you feel as kind of a, an ambassador for Jewish culture and certainly Jewish comics? You know, because um, I thought my, I was working, thinking it recently, actually, my kind of Jewish experience has kind of evolved. I was quite religious at one point. I came from a traditional, more religious family. And now I've always felt that my contribution to the, the Jewish world I came from and the Jewish world I'm growing into is really through this culture. And it's, I kind of, it's, there's no kind of, version of, of Jewishness that I'm ever trying to portray in anything that I do. It's just I love saying, look at all the stuff that's being made by these Jewish women. That's I think that's quite wonderful. And I kind of hope that someone someone like me in the future might say, oh, look, there's work that I relate to that kind of inspires me or gives me permission to create like I want to do. It's just mm. the way I teach as well, really. I like to show examples of and hope that people feel um inspired i think that um when i grew up women in the jewish community i grew up in the women didn't have power really and they didn't get to speak or to um give the lectures and the sermons and i always feel that everything i've done ever since is like my own sermon um when i give conference papers or lectures or publications like i'm taking on that rabbinical voice that when i grew up the women never had so mm. that's also i suppose probably in some other version of me a hundred thousands of years ago, I'd have been some kind of rabbinic figure, but as it is, I'm just using comics as a medium really to talk about human experience and kind of the evolution of Jewish culture. Mm. Well, and not only that, there was something that Sharon said uh, a few minutes ago that I thought could have equally have come out of your mouth, uh, that it's about her experience of being an artist and being a mother. 
Yes, definitely. So I think um, one of the reasons actually I was so excited to collect comics about Jewish women's bodies was I'd gone through such a bodily experience, having a baby, breastfeeding, kind of engaging with this child um, and and kind of understanding my body as people would see it and how I was experiencing it. So I was really excited to collect together comics about things um, bodily. And so, you know, in this collection, we have comics about um, infertility. We have comics about cancer. We have um, comics about having your period in the Warsaw ghetto and not having any sanitary towels. Um, I, I find it so wonderful to collect stories and images all about these experiences that sometimes we're shy to talk about but of course they're universal mm. well and it's interesting that um the book uh that you have coming out very shortly sharon uh, uh the bund which i think actually comes out tomorrow uh the day of this recording according to amazon um in a way feels like a, a belated sequel to something like uh Die Bube which in that comic you talk about your grandmother's experience uh, in kind of like the Jewish ghettos in Ukraine. And in this book, um, it's uh, a history of how Jewish people were kind of persecuted in Eastern Europe um, and had to kind of th find their way beyond that. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the book? Yes, I want to explain how I did that because, you know, it's the first thing that I've written and not drawn. I am slowing down and my vision is deteriorating, but it but it wasn't that. Uh, um, Jewish woman artist in her late 80s had had this project in mind, done sketches, taken notes, and, uh, and she asked Paul Bull to find someone that could help her writing, and she didn't know how to script a, a graphic book. And um, and I wanted to help, so I got started trying to work on it. And I tried to keep it as simple as I could as far as saying what would be in each one-page drawing, because, you know, for someone to go from not having drawn comics at all to doing a whole book is a pretty big jump. And then pretty early on in that process, she dropped out of it entirely. And before we could even decide what to do, the publisher, a Canadian publisher, found a Canadian artist. So there I was um, trying to write this book. And um, I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about the Bund. When I first heard about the project, I actually thought the Bund was might have been a group of Jews that supported Nazism. And I was trying to figure out how that could possibly be. Luckily, I found out that wasn't the case. And the more I learned about the Bund, the more they just, they felt Hamisher, they felt like my Jews, the ones that came here and created the kind of Jewish culture that was the early movies, that was Jewish theater, that was Jewish comedy, what I grew up with. Um, I think it really enriched my sense of my own Jewish upbringing. And uh, I've actually gone back to a, a children's book I tried writing some years ago that I, I gave up on because I thought it was becoming more of a Chinese story than a, than a Jewish story. But after working on The Bund, I felt comfortable. And Sarah just read it in the last 24 hours, and she loves it. So I, I think it's okay. I'm going to try to do it. Um, anyways, uh, The Bund was a real... Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I just, I'll just say it to Alex. It's it's a very beautiful story, and I suppose that the premise is that you never know what is kind of an agent of God in the end, because it's a very poor girl who takes in a cat, and that helps the whole judgment. The Rosh Hashanah, you know, and the Jews are feeling judged, are being judged during these days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's her kindness that kind of changes the history of how that you know the future history of the community she grows up in.
Is that somewhat true, Sharon? Is that a- yes, yes. That's and you know, and that's a theme of many myths and stories and things in the Bible too. So, um, yeah, that's definitely what it's all about. But I also kept feeling when I went back to it and worked on it that it was a sort of sense that there was that even God had to bow to the higher deity of nature, that in fact a meandering river is actually better for the land than a river that's been straightened so that it has more power, that that the cats that are the living creatures we share the earth with in a way that they exert powers of their own that perhaps in some ways can supersede the powers of the, the spirits that we we invest with power so but i wanted to keep that whole aspect of it too subtle to offend somebody that followed a a stricter religion yeah i'm i'm i definitely want to work on that more oh anyway about the bun one last comment about the bun though i think i did integrate i'm sort of proud that although i was telling the story i was able to integrate some other aspects of of eastern european history from that time i actually quote tolstoy to to point out that it wasn't only jews that that knew that the system was rotten to its core and that it had to come down and that it had to change so i tried to keep a, the jewish story within the wider story of what was going on in history and then i was working on it just as the invasion of ukraine and uh, and when you get to the Russo-Japanese War, that the Russians apparently had no idea that the Japanese actually had modern weaponry. That's that seemed very germane to what was going on in Ukraine in the early days of the invasion. So I was very much the script is very much influenced. I probably would have been nicer to Russia if it wasn't for the the invasion of Ukraine. And Sarah, in terms of, you know, this is the second kind of uh, semi-academic book that you've uh, edited or co-edited. In terms of your own practice, you've been sharing um, images on Facebook that seem kind of connected to your work in the book of Sarah. Can we expect more uh, comics or, dare I ask, another graphic novel from you at some point in the future? Truly, I didn't know I was making a graphic novel I was just drawing my life in text and images and um, I kind of I'm just I got this kind of urge urge to create large-scale drawings and paintings of text and image I take often figurations from um, master paintings or biblical paintings and place these biblical women in my contemporary life to kind of critique maybe the scenarios I find myself in but also sometimes just to express kind of frustration at so many domestic chores or kind of the bodily changes like I, I've got this big drawing I'm doing of um, the Virgin Mary having a hot flush on the northern line on the underground picking up Jesus from school and um, kind of all these bodily experiences that I'm experiencing I kind of want to tap through the kind of biblical images to a kind of more universal voice asking why do we never hear any of these stories in in the Bible or in biblical art why do we never know how the women are feeling you know they always have to be gorgeous or gracious or serene why can't they be agonizing or have cramps and or you know be angry so i'm trying to find a visual language that uses the things that i'm interested in um on, on a large scale and it's really fun for me i'm really happy so who knows it might become something a book of visual essays or something but i as i said i never quite know what i'm doing i just have to follow the urge and see where it goes Great. Well, thanks ever so much for finding the time today uh, to chat. It's been, it's been wonderful um, uh, doing so. It's been very Thank nice you. chatting with you. Thank you, Alex. My pleasure. The anthology, Jewish Women in Comics, Bodies and Borders, edited by Heike Bauer, Andrea Greenbaum and Sarah Lightman, 
and featuring the work of Sharon Rudall and various other female Jewish creators is available now from all good bookshops and from their publisher's website, Syracuse University Press, which you can find at press.syr.edu. You can find more info about Sarah Lightman's work by going to sarahlightman.com. And if you go to our website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, there are links to websites that feature work by Sharon Rudal, such as Die Buber, which is featured in Jewish Women in Comics, and Sharon's newest book, The Bond, A Graphic History of Jewish Labour Resistance, with script by Sharon Rudal and art by Michael Kluckner, is available now from all good comic shops and online retailers. In the second half of today's show, I'm talking to novelist, editor and comics writer Elisa Quitney, who worked on a number of renowned DC adult comics in the 1990s, such as Shade the Changing Man, which led to the creation of their much-loved and much-missed imprint Vertigo, which was set up by award-winning editor Karen Berger. I'm chatting to Elisa about working with Karen, writing spin-offs from Neil Gaiman's much-loved title Sandman, such as The Dreaming and Destiny, as well as her parallel career as a novelist, and her return to comics recently, writing titles for Ahoy Comics, such as Guilt and Project Cryptid. My interview with Elisa was also programmed because she's one of the guests of the forthcoming festival Jewish Comics Experience, which takes place for the Center for Jewish History in New York on November the 11th to 12th. My interview with Elisa, not to mention the planning for today's episode and the recording of most of the content, was before the terrible events which took place on the 7th of October, and so perhaps some of the levity that you'll hear in this interview might not have been the case if it had been recorded a few weeks later. I mean, obviously, you know, we can, we'll talk about your writing, we'll talk about your editing and working in comics, but the fact that you're appearing at the, uh, the Juicy, Juicy maybe, convention, I guess is kind of staking a claim for the presence of Jewish people in comics. I mean, is that an important part of your identity as a writer, as a creator? Yes, absolutely. I um, I should start by saying that when, you know, I've had sort of two parallel career tracks, one in comics and one in uh, romance slash romantic women's fiction. And when I started out in the 90s in genre fiction, there were no Jewish people. There were no Jewish heroines. There, there were no Jewish heroes. And it was so much a part of my identity that I couldn't really see writing authentically uh, a heroine who was not Jewish and, you know, not not deeply, you know, observant, but but culturally Jewish. And that was something that that kind of went into most of my work, because especially when I'm writing in horror or or romance or some other genre, I want to write as authentically out of of um, something that feels resonant psychologically and emotionally. And so for me, being Jewish is a big piece of that. Mm. It's interesting that if you obviously look at the history of comics, so many iconic characters were created by Jewish male creators, but it was only kind of with underground comics in the 70s that you started to get creators like uh, Trina Robbins, um, 
I mean, all of those kind of great female creators who contributed to women's comics uh, in the 70s and finally found a voice. So I don't know, do you think it's kind of autobiography that has helped get a presence uh, in other genres? This is this is a, a, a nascent theory of mine. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I have this theory that we've gone through these phases in terms of diversity in popular culture. So the first was, you know, there are no, I don't know, Jewish people, black people. And then there were. But, you know, if you look at um, a lot of uh, there, there were a lot of the villain was you know the drug dealer was was black and and the jewish person was you know more stereotypical jewish role and then people sort of woke up and said okay so so they, we can do anything but have them in the stereotypical role so we mustn't do that that was followed by let's just have everything be blind casting so you know if it's a um, when i came into comics it was that moment in time where I don't remember who told me this, but I was, as you know, I was an assistant editor on Sandman and then I became a full editor. And um, and I was also writing comics and people said, if you are white and your artist is white and you don't specify, chances are every character will be explicitly white. And you might not notice that as much in prose, but you know, you you will you will see it on the comic book page. And so the idea was, OK, let's Sesame Street this a little. It's not that being Jewish or being black or being Hispanic was a part of the conversation. You just wanted to have at least some, you know, differently hued faces in the in the background. And I think that was finally followed now by by a realization that, you know, if you are Jewish or black or indigenous, that these experiences form you and um, and you have specific cultural touchstones. And since, as we all know, the way to get to the universal is through the specific, uh, I think that's given a lot more weight now. So that was the most long-winded answer in the world. But so my theory is that, you know, we've had these different generations of becoming aware of, of how to be diverse and I think the one we're in right now is saying, yes, you know, through specificity and the specificity has to do with with your cultural identity. Mm. I guess I don't know enough about kind of Jewish mythology to trace elements that might be present in some of the comics that you've written. But I wonder if it kind of helped that Neil sort of opened the door, that in Sandman, there's this complete smorgasbord of mythologies taken from various countries, from various religious myths, and so on. And so by kind of creating that world where all of these different types of storytelling and all these sorts of characters can exist side by side, it allows people of other voices that when they enter that world, like you did with The Dreaming and then other uh, you know, subsequent comics, it allows you to then bring your voice in kind of more authentically. Yes, I mean, I, I learned a lot from Neil. I think that, you know, he has all these characters who are casually Jewish and that, you know, I just I do uh, the Endless podcast with my friend and story expert Lani Diane Rich. And we just did uh, three Septembers in a January 
And, you know, Emperor Norton, it's sort of casually mentioned by death, you know, the, the 36 righteous people on whom the world depends, which is part of Jewish Midrash and lore. And, uh, you know, and so she 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 references that because the character was himself, uh, you know, born Jewish. So there's that. But but then Neil sort of inspired me not just to work out of my own experience, but to kind of use some of my Hebrew school education. And I was doing a dreaming story, which Karen Berger edited. Uh, it was a Cain and Abel story. And in it, I, you know, I knew, obviously, that Cain and Abel had sisters. And in the, in the Jewish, the Midrash is sort of the the lore that goes around filling out the gaps in in the written narrative. And uh, so Cain had a twin sister, according to this, and so did Abel. And they each married each other's sister because there weren't, you know, other humans around. And in the uh, Muslim tradition, it's the same, except they actually give a name to, uh, to the twins. And I'm having a moment, even though I wrote this, I wrote it back in the 90s, I'm, I'm spacing out on the name. So I I included Cain and Abel's uh, sisters as part of their um, part of their story. And I also was drawing a bit on the whole idea of the mad woman in the attic. But but it was Neil who inspired me to think along those lines. Mm. And in, in terms of how you kind of got your first gig as an editor, you did a, a master's and turned your thesis into your first novel. When I was in the master's program, in the MFA program, in creative writing, in fiction, ah. I crossed over into the English department and took, I think it was a feminist uh, literature class. And I somehow like transgressed the, the rules of academic reading so much that the professor said to me, you know, I don't think you're qualified to be in this class. So I, I kind of raced off and I, I, I went, my mom had a, a friend who was a professor of literature, Leonard Wolf, And I said, quick, I need to be able to fake this better than I, I have been. And he, he told me what to do. And I went back in and she said, oh, I don't know what that little aberration was. But I included her then as a character in my first novel, which is a very Jewish humor kind of thing to do. <laughs> nice. Um, the, the point I was going to make was, so, you know, you, you had your first novel published in 1991 on the back of doing the MFA. Uh, and then your next novel came out 10 years later. And presumably you had ambitions, you know, to be a professional novelist. And that's something that you have realised in recent years. But did the editing come about? Because I guess in terms of, you know, studying writing, you have experience of how it should be editing and it became a bit of a side hustle that became a career in the meantime um okay so it started out that you know I was in graduate school and I needed to get a job and what most people were doing uh they were going to literary uh publishers and getting jobs as assistant editors and I also interviewed for that and um I remember that an editor said basically I am going to treat you badly I'm going to criticize you and you're going to work around the clock. And uh, also you won't be paid very much. So you'll continue <laughs> to live in your mother's apartment. And I thought, oh, this this is my side hustle. And and it's uh, so I thought, well, you know, I still read comics and I still read romance. I wonder if things are better in genre. 
and I, I sent out my resume. And so from that, I, I got interviews, um, you know, first at DC Comics and um, and later at, at Silhouette as well. But they asked me what comics I was reading. And instead of lying, I said, well, not reading so much because you stopped publishing my favorite comics. I loved House of Mystery and House of Secrets. And um, which are known as horror anthologies. But honestly, they were very much about humor as well. And there, there was also Plop, which was a combination of body horror, dark humor, and satire. And um, and so they said, oh, <laughs> you are weird. We know where to put weird. Karen Berger does weird. And, um, and she, because it wasn't yet Vertigo, and she needs uh, an assistant. So... You know, Karen and I met and really instantly hit it off. And I loved the things that she was editing. So I I remember that my mom initially said to me, um, when are you going to get a real job in publishing? <laughs> and I said, Mom, this is this is an amazing place to be. Now, my mom, my mother uh, was a journalist, but also married to uh, my father, Robert Sheckley, who came out of the whole you know, uh, science fiction absurdist school. He was sort of one of the the first, I think maybe the first real science fiction humorist. And so I, I think when she realized that this, the, the comic scene of the 90s was a lot like the science fiction scene of the 50s, she realized, you know, oh, you are in the right place. Hmm. Well, I guess particularly because uh, under Karen, Vertigo felt like a bit of a, to use a modern term, a vibe shift, where actually the writing was suddenly really important for the first time in comics. That previously, you know, the writing and the art had gone hand in hand, but it felt more like it was a visual medium. And then under Karen's auspices, it actually, the quality of the writing got better and better with all of the various writers that she, you know, employed and nurtured. Yes, um, except that, you know, I grew up reading all kinds of horror comics. And there was wonderful writing in them and really thought provoking things. I think it's easy to overlook, you know, the fine writers who, who were working always and doing, you know, thought provoking and, and, and um, subversive stories cloaked under the mantle of horror humor for kids. But, you know, Karen, made it more by saying let's elevate the writers let's let's follow their vision let's you know you know it's not that she had one particular publishing agenda but that she would look for people whose voices and stories you know really resonated with her mm. and in those early days i mean what were your kind of day-to-day -day, uh, kind of activities as an editor were you kind of gently kind of uh, introduced the role by first doing the letters page and then looking at scripts and, and so on? Yes, although, you know, I, I um, because I came out of, I was an English major from Wesleyan and I had a, an MFA, which, which, you know, the difference, I think, in part between an MFA and, and, uh, and a master's in literature is, you know, in MFA, you're very hands-on. It's sort of engineering rather than architecture school. And... Um, and which is good for being a writer and and for being an editor. So I quickly was more involved on on the story end of things, and then I I had to come up get get up to speed more on the art side, and um, 
like I remember I was working on Peter Milligan and Shade the Changing Man. And uh, it, it's very much about the relationship between uh, uh, this character, uh, Kate, and um, and and the originally Ditko created character of, of someone who comes out of the madness zone and he's inhabiting the body of a serial killer, Troy Genzer, who killed, it's Kathy, Kathy, not Kate, uh, killed Kathy's boyfriend. So anyway, there's this weird uh, triangle that forms. And I remember that I realized, I kept thinking, have I missed something? Because at some point their relationship became sexual and then, and romantic. And then uh, there was this tension between, is it me or the hint of the other man in whose body I reside? And I said, well, what happened to the first time? I'm, I'm missing that. And I told that to Karen and she said, tell Peter. So it was, it was really early on. And I got a chance to say, as a reader, who's very interested in relationships, I want to know about that first time. I want to, I want to, you know, so he, and, and I remember him going back and, and exploring that more fully, um, which was just one of my, my favorite early story editing things that I had a chance to do. Mm. Well, I guess that's kind of like the ideal uh, writer-editor relationship, you know, that you're kind of getting them to make their work better. And, you know, one hopes that it's always been the case that they've been amenable to any suggestions you send their way. Yes, I think that people often misunderstand what being a good editor is all about, because I think people often think that a good editor keeps telling you to remove things. And I think a really good editor sees connections that you've put in there, but you haven't perhaps recognized. And they're saying, this connection, explore this deep in this. And sometimes along the way, you have to remove other bits. But it's um, it's constructive editing that I think is is most intriguing. And, and being able to help someone, you, you know, to, how can I say this? what Karen was wonderful at and and what I aspire to do is to help people most fully realize their vision. And what I look for as a writer when I'm working with an editor is someone who works with me in that way. And it sounds that like Shade was the ideal first project for you to work on because it mixed your favorite genres of horror, comedy and romance together in one package. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I loved, I loved Shane. I loved Sandman from, from very early on. Um, and Sandman, I think blended the horror mm. and, and, and a lot of what we now call fan service, where you're sort of giving a nod to people who remember House of Mystery and House of Secrets with something very philosophical and psychological. So then you started writing comics as well as editing them, um, working on, I believe your first gig was the Children's Crusade crossover. I was going to say, I, I don't want to ask you to, to bite the hand that, that, that fed you, but it, it feels both at the time and the fact that when that's been reprinted, they're kind of always inserting new chapters in to almost fill gaps, that it was yes. a, a crossover that was perhaps a jigsaw puzzle that was hard to fit together. Let's put it that way. <laughs> You know, the whole, we're building the plane as we fly it. Yeah, absolutely. So my mandate 
when I was filling in. So I, I should explain how I came to 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 be. So in those days, you were encouraged to write or draw as well as edit. So, you know, Dick Giordano, the vice president of the company, was our fill-in inker on issues. And I had to say to him, listen, Dick, I think your own style's showing through a bit too much. Yeah, you know, and it was fine. I was telling someone so many rungs uh, over me in the in the company. Uh, so so I was encouraged. But one of the things that I humor was the way I got that gig. So I have always really enjoyed mimicking other people's style. And I do it for fun, you know, just just as a what, what my mother used to call a four finger exercise. And uh, so I was working on Sandman a bunch and I would just sort of we, we were working on big selectric typewriters at the time. And I would sometimes write little, little, you know, spoofs of things. And, um, and, and I think I even showed one to Neil and he said, you know, that, that sort of sounds like me. And so I, um, when he became overwhelmed and there was too many moving pieces with children's crusade, I was told, well, you know, you're going to do some fill in here and then I'll polish it. But, you know, we don't know who I, at that point, my memory is that we didn't know who the big bad was. And so I was supposed to leave red herrings in various uh, places. But it was humor that that I think got me that gig. And if you look at the big uh, double page spread in Children's Crusade, which I wrote, uh, you can see that. Uh, Neil is sitting there as a little boy and there's all of these magical things going on and he has his head down and is in a book completely oblivious to everything else that's going on around him. Are you often uh, sneaking your collaborators into the pages uh, that you're writing for cameos? Because you did Absolutely. it with your mother. <laughs> yeah, so um, so I've been working with Morisei, um, Alan, as I, you know, his real first name is Alan. Uh, and we were we were a a DC match, like they said. Okay, you're going to do this, you know, this project as writer, and we would like Maurice to do it as as artist. And then it, it didn't work out. That's what turned into Mystic You, and the wonderful Mike Norton ended up, you know, illustrating it. And and Mike and I had a great time doing it. But Alan and I had developed this strange friendship, and so we were constantly talking. And now we've done a number of projects together. We've we've done Guilt, um, which I think is is what you know has gotten me the first comics you know nomination for something since uh, Destiny did for an Eisner back when uh, the Earth and I were much younger. And um, and and we've also worked on on two cryptid stories. And now we're working on another project, which I'm probably not allowed to say too much about just yet, but. Um, Anyway, so we do a lot of back and forth. And because so much of, of guilt was about my childhood and my mother, I worked him in. So there's a scene in an airport, uh, which I loved uh, disaster movies from the 1970s. So he is the little French boy, you know, who's yelling, Mama, Mama, you know, whatever, the, mm. um, whatever that is. I do want to say something, uh, if I may, about comics and humor because uh so I've worked in prose and I've worked in comics and it was easier for me to be funny in prose because I was in control of the whole shebang I was in control of the rhythm and rhythm 
sound and timing have a lot to do with with humor and in just spoken in prose you know some some words just sound funnier it's why yiddish most of yiddish if french is the language of love yiddish is the language of humor even the word for sex stupping it just it sounds you know it's it's inherently you know you don't you don't imagine you know mr darcy saying you know I long to stop you. You know, it's it's just, it turns into Mel Brooks immediately. So anyway, so sound and rhythm, great. In comics, you've got the timing so much determined by the artist. Um, because even if you say to yourself, I see it as being this many panels and this is where the punchline comes, a lot of where I think the humor comes from is in micro expressions, what we call the acting of the comics, which are those little shifts between characters, the the expression. And I looked at Terry Moore, who is just my role model, but he is both a writer and the artist of, of his material. And I was always thinking, how, how can I find a way to do what he does, um, which is to be very emotionally authentic and often dramatic and then really, really funny. And until Alain and I really began to work together, I don't know that I I felt, you know, that that comfort level. And we go back and forth a lot. Sometimes he changes something, sometimes I do, to, to get it to work the way we, we really want it to work. Mm. If anyone ever asks me why there are so many Jewish comedians, I will refer them to your answer. It all comes from the, the language. That's brilliant. I'd never realized that before. Can I tell you about a particular panel? that I'm mm. so proud of with, mm. well, there's there's a few. So Alan and I have just done a short horror story called Chupahuahua and uh, sort of a cross between Chupacabra and Chihuahua. And um, in order for the punchline to land, and in this, the punchline is also the denouement, you know, because I, I want things to really work on various levels. We needed for a Chihuahua to have an expression on her face that combined chagrin, pride, and a frisson of perhaps sexual reminiscence. And Alain just nails it. You know, it's that it, it's just a, a little Mona Lisa of a Chihuahua look. And uh, I'm very impressed with him. OK, let me just go back and say something about humor for me. I take humor very seriously. I think that it is, it often gets underappreciated because I think it can pack so much meaning in and it delivers it sort of, you know, in a sucker punch sort of, sort of way. So um, like when I saw Fleabag, I thought, oh God, this is what I aspire to, where the humor is 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 sort of the you know the coding under which this this potent thing is is getting delivered so in this i've got a, a woman in her 70s in guilt i've got a character who's in her 70s and another, another character in her 50s and the the woman in her 50s is has been hired as a home health care aide the woman in her her 70s is is having um the beginning of some cognitive slip and uh, and underneath that, there is a lot of serious and very true things. But I wanted the and, and the humor of it is that the, there's a, a portal back to 1974 and both women go through it. And uh, and so they, they spend most of the comic in their 
you know, with the older woman in her 30s and the younger woman nine years old, and they turn out to have known each other and have, as as as, as the kids say, they have work to do to, to resolve all of this, uh, but they've also screwed up the space-time continuum. Anyway, one of the things that I wanted um, was for Trista, the younger woman, to be going through the cabinet and to pull out some things that sort of horrify her. And one of them is a cobweb color, a covered diaphragm. And I mean, it's so first of all, nobody, I don't know, I, I don't know at what age people don't even probably know what a diaphragm is. It's probably in some, you know, museum of sex, actually covered with cobwebs now. But it was children, this was what your 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 mothers or grandmothers used for contraception. And um and I think there is something sort of horrifying, disgusting, and intensely amusing about finding someone's ancient diaphragm. And, you know, so Land delighted in that as well. So a lot of what makes it really wonderful is just to to take this this moment and you've got to have this expression of just, you know, truly appalled uh, repulsion. But on a deeper level, why should we be repulsed at discovering that, you know, that those who are a generation or more removed from us once upon a time were like us and did need contraception? So I, I think that's that's also underneath the surface of it. I wonder if there was something in the zeitgeist when you were writing that, because it would have been at the same time that Natasha Leon would have been writing the second season of Russian Doll, which is also about women going back in time and meeting uh, their mothers when they were younger and finding out they're not what they expected. Uh, I don't know, something going on in culture that you were both addressing. It's, it's really interesting. Well, I think being able... In TV and in comics these days, there is more freedom to explore ideas and follow them where they take you, to use genre tropes, but use them in deeply personal ways. And I think that, you know, we are all time travelers because we, we I don't know anyone who hasn't gone and said, oh, Lord, if I could just go back to this moment in my history, and, you know, I would like to just zig and not zag. And where would that take me? So I, I don't know anyone who doesn't do that. I, you know, I had to really work to make sure that my rules of time travel allowed me to say the things that I wanted to say. And on a serious note, this is what I have to say. It is hard enough to change the things you know you ought to change. I mean, most of us know that we should not have the sixth slice of buttered toast, but it's not always so easy not to have it. And if you imagine that you go back in time, my my thought is that given that context, given the body you were in at the time, you will be sucked back into the reality that was. And mm. in all likelihood, you know, repeat the same mistakes. Indeed. <laughs> Um, like I said, your first novel came out in 1991 and your second uh, in 2002. Having worked on comics, edited comics, written comics for a decade in between, do you think that fundamentally changed you as a novelist? If that experience hadn't happened in between, do you think you would have written in a, in a different way? Yes, absolutely. It It changed me profoundly as a writer. So I started out as someone, I think, with a good ear for dialogue. And my first novel was very influenced by the writer Faye Weldon, in particular by a lesser known book of hers called Puffball, 
And I, I remember reading Puffball. You could read Puffball and read my first novel and not, you wouldn't know that, you know, one had influenced the other, but it was feminist. It was a bit fabulous. And it, it uh, took on this very, uh, you know, quasi Victorian tone. And I remember thinking, Oh, wait, I think I could do that. I think that feels, you know, that it's it's the same as when you're young, you look at someone's style and you think black leather jacket, you know, and, 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 you know, whatever it is, you, you know, floppy hair, I could do that. That could be my look too. But I don't think I had a keen visual sense. And in working for comics and working with artists and learning from artists, the first artist I worked with um, was Guy Davis in the Phantom Stranger special. And I would go back over my script and see where he departed from what I'd asked for and think, okay, I get it. He wants to end on this note and not on that note. And oh, look, he's inserted an extra panel here, but on this page, he's removed a panel. And I learned because he was he wasn't being lazy, as you know, some artists might cut corners to be lazy or because, you know, I don't know how to draw people from that angle. But with a real master artist, what you get is somebody teaching you visual storytelling. And over time, I've spent more and more time thinking about the visual storytelling because um, it can help you be more fully in the story. So I just had a friend who showed me a first draft of something. And it's set in, uh, I think, the early 1800s, and it's in a carriage. And I said, okay, come here, sit with me. And we put two chairs in the middle of the living room. And I said, okay, so you're looking out, where's the window of the carriage? And where's the driver? Okay, he's overhead. You've got soldiers, four of them. How many can you see through that window? What are you, are you hearing something? Are you going to peer out the window over here? Is, is, is it rocking? I mean, in in comics, you're going to slow it down and figure out what you see. In a novel, you're really trying to use all your senses. But by getting deeply into the experience and figuring out what do you see, when do you know it, and when. So that transformed my writing. The other thing that that has helped me, I think, you know, continue to develop my craft is acting exercises, where I think now about how um, I'm sorry, I'm babbling a bit. This is the stuff that excites me. Um, so there's this thing that people call the actor's bit of business. So that's when an actor on their own decides to do a little bit of an action, because we're not usually just sitting and talking as you and I are doing. We're usually folding the laundry, washing the dishes, or you know, trying to figure out what tie to wear as we're talking. And when you do that, you do it in the style of the character, but it also helps pace you through a scene. And again, it gives you that grounding in the reality. And part of that is passage of time. So what I, I think about more and more is, you know, using sense memories and using the actor's bit of business to to deepen a scene. Cool. I, th I think that's that's pretty much everything covered. It's been lovely to talk to you. And it, like I said, it sounds like a fantastic event. You know, I, I hope your appearance there uh, is well attended and, and it goes well. Thank you so much. I'm I'm excited for it and um, and really wanting to have a chance to 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 get together with other people to explore and to celebrate what others are doing. That's the exciting thing. And, you know, post well, sort of post covid it feels even more precious than before to get together with like-minded people and, um, you know, share some some spycraft. Indeed.
Brilliant. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank Cheers. you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You can find more info about Elisa Quitney's work by going to her website, elisaquitney.com. That's A-L-I-S-A-K-W-I-T-N-E-Y.com. And the latest comics that she's written for Ahoy, such as Guilt and Project Cryptid, which features the story about the chupacabra that we discussed earlier in the interview, can be found at comicsahoy.com. The Jewish Comics Experience, Juicy, which takes place at the Center for Jewish History in New York on the 11th and 12th of November, can be found at jewce.org. Closer to home for British listeners, there are various comic book events taking place in London and across the home counties throughout November. At Gosh Comics, 1 Berwick Street in Soho, they have a signing on Wednesday the 8th of November as the launch party for Leftovers, a new graphic novel by Ferry Goo. This supernatural horror comic, inspired by Indonesian folklore, is published by Page Masters, and Perry will be at Gosh on Wednesday the 8th of November from 7pm, or if you are unable to make the launch event, signed copies will be available shortly after from Gosh's website. On Wednesday the 29th of November, Dave McKean will be at Gosh in conversation with one of his regular collaborators, S.F. Said. And while the two authors have previously worked on such titles as Varjak Poor and Phoenix, on the 29th of November they'll be discussing Dave's latest book, Thalamus, which is a huge hardback collection celebrating McKean's work so far, published by Dark Horse Comics. The Q&A is taking place at Gosh on the 29th of November at 7.30pm. And while this isn't a ticketed event, space is in short supply at Gosh, so seating will be assigned on a first-come, first-served basis. Looking ahead to December, the creator of the much-loved Giant Days series, John Allison, will be in the store, signing his new graphic novel, The Great British Bump-Off. And this comedic graphic novel is about a murder mystery taking place on the set of a TV baking competition. Alison's signing of The Great British Bump-Off takes place on Saturday the 9th of December from 1 to 2 p.m. And you can find more info about all Gosh signings by going to goshlondon.com stroke the dash gosh dash blog. Just across town at Forbidden Planet on Shaftesbury Avenue, Rob Williams and Pi Parr will be signing their new comic, Petrol Head, on Wednesday the 8th of November from 6 to 7pm. Then on Saturday the 11th of November, they have a signing of the new European graphic novel, Inside the Mind of Sherlock Holmes, by creators Cyril Liron and Benoit Dahan, and that's on Saturday the 11th at 4pm. Then on Saturday the 9th of December, there's a signing celebrating the publication of the latest Rivers of London graphic novel, here Be Dragons, by Ben Aronovich, James Swallow, and Andrew Cartmel, all writers well known for their work on Doctor Who. That's taking place on Saturday the 9th from 2 to 3pm. For more info about all Forbidden Planet events, please go to forbiddenplanet.com stroke plu stroke events. Ladies Do Comics are doing in-person events again, with two taking place in the month of November. Towards the end of the month, on Thursday the 23rd, they have a Bristol-based event taking place at Hamilton House, 80 Stokes Croft, 
with Emma Burley introducing guests Piggy Hammer, Hannah K. Chapman, and S.K. Schaefer, who'll be talking about their various comics and graphic novels at the Bristol LD Comics meetup. In London, on Thursday the 9th, LD Comics will be getting together at the Cartoon Museum, and Rachel Ball will be interviewing guests Tor Freeman and Lucy Bergonzi. You can find more info about LD Comics by going to ldcomics.com. And the Q&A with Tor Freeman and Lucy Bergonzi is not the only event taking place at the Cartoon Museum this month. Their new temporary exhibition celebrates 30 years of the classic Aardman animation, The Wrong Trousers, and director Nick Park and cinematographer Dave Alex Riddit will be at the Cartoon Museum on Thursday the 16th of November from 7pm to discuss this much-loved and award-winning Wallace and Gromit claymation cartoon. Before that, on Saturday the 11th of November, Steve Marchant, cartoonist and educator at the Cartoon Museum, will be running a workshop called Witches, helping attendees create these mythical creatures in a one-page comic strip, and there'll be a presentation by Dr. Simona De Martino about the presence of teen witches in Italian comics. That's taking place on Saturday the 11th of November from 11 till 12.30 p.m. Another film screening taking place at the Cartoon Museum is a showing of director Terry Zwigoff's documentary about Robert Crumb. And programmers Joel Whittaker and Molly Miles will be introducing the screening of Crumb at the Cartoon Museum. And if you haven't seen this documentary, it's well worth a watch. Crumb is being shown on Thursday the 30th of November from 7pm. You can find more info about all Cartoon Museum events by going to cartoonmuseum.org where you can book tickets for the various talks and workshops and find out more about the various exhibitions they have on display at the moment. In Brighton, the next get-together of Cartoon County is taking place on Monday the 20th of November at the Walrus Pub on Ship Street in the Lanes. And our guest this month is renowned Guardian cartoonist Martin Rosen, who'll be giving a talk about his career doing editorial comics and graphic novels based on literary works such as Marx's The Communist Manifesto and Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy. More recently, Rosen illustrated the non-fiction book The Last Colony, a tale of exile, justice and Britain's colonial legacy, in which author Philip Sands looks at the legacy of colonial rule in Mauritius, Chagos and the entire African continent. And Rosen's most recent collection of strips, the Love Songs of Late Capitalism is the author's most recent rumination on the commodification of music, art, death, memory, funerals, love, bucket lists and dreams in the 21st century. If you'd like to come along to Cartoon County on the 20th of November, then please make your way to the Walrus Pub in the Lanes or closer to the date, please visit www.cartooncounty.com where there'll be info about how to sign up to the online version of my Q&A with Martin Rosen, which will be streamed live on Zoom. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find over 500 previous episodes on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com and our last broadcast episode of the year will be once again at 5.30 on Wednesday the 6th of December on Resonance FM. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. 
If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.